Welcome to the Barefoot Lunch Podcast, helping you lead a more creative and vital life. I'm your host, David Sweet. Hello, welcome to Barefoot Lunch Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Robert Tobin, who's a writer and a very motivational speaker. I was watching your TED Talk again yesterday. Yeah. Um, who is a writer and who's written several books. Uh, what do you want to create today? A Perfect Day and his latest uh, book that I bought for my son who's graduating from KO. No Regrets, How to Kickstart Your Career and Your Life. Uh, joining us from Okinawa. Uh, welcome, Bob. Hi, David. Great to be here. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I want to say fabulous because I really am. <laughs> I'm fine. Thanks. So I want to, I want to start with uh, your your book. Uh, what do you want to create today? What do you want to create today, Bob? I want to create a fabulous podcast. The day where I meet some friends. The day where I talk to you. Uh, wonderful lunch. A little bit of writing. That's it. Uh, Every day I ask myself that question, what do I want to create today? And that makes a big difference in my day. So you do that, do you do that when you wake up in the morning? And, and uh, do you have uh, I'd like to morning? say I do it when I wake up in the morning, but I have a few things that I do every day. One is I take a walk. Mm-hmm. Two is I make coffee. Three is I meditate. And I usually ask myself, what do you want to create today when I'm meditating? So... I'd like to say it's at the beginning of my day, but sometimes I make coffee first. Sometimes I take the walk first. Uh, but those three things are constant. And uh, how long do you meditate for? About 20 minutes. Do, do you use a program or do you just kind of sit and... I sit and I think and I clear my brain. I, If I had any bad dreams or worries or anything like that, either I write them down or I just throw them away. Yeah. I think morning rituals are, are huge. I do um, the coffee one is the first thing in the morning. I wake up at five every morning, do the coffee. Do you? Okay. And then I write for 20 minutes, meditate for 20 minutes and go run. If I miss any part of that, I kind of get. Yeah, me too. I get custom. I get confused if I don't meditate, if I, if I don't take a walk or if I don't have my coffee, I mean, I have some special coffee beans that I'm bringing down from Tokyo. If really? I don't have those beans, I have to drink a coffee from the Kamini. It's just just not the same for me. Right. What, what kind of coffee do you get from Tokyo? It's regular Seijo Ishii coffee. <laughs> gross, but I'm addicted to that one. Nice. Cool. What did, let's, let's start at the beginning. So growing up, now, did you grow up let's, in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, in, in Wellesley, outside of Boston. Yeah, so let's let's go from Massachusetts to Nippon. Take us take us there. Okay, so I lived in Boston until about I was thirty. I went to graduate school there at Boston University. I mostly worked in consulting there, but also I started teaching part time at universities. And then I went to grad school at BU, and I couldn't wait to leave Boston. It was too cold. It was too too confining. Too it wasn't me. I needed a more free environment. So I moved to California. I got a job teaching in one of the state universities there. And then I taught at Pepperdine University. I taught in the MBA program there for a while. And 
things didn't really work out for me at that state university. I love the students, but it wasn't the right place for me. Um, got into a lot of political hassles with other professors and just said, F this. And they said, F you to me. <laughs> so I taught at Pepperdine for a while. And then there was an opportunity to work for the U.S. military as a contractor teaching on military bases all around Asia. Uh -huh. And I put up my hand and I left about three months later, four months later and taught every two months I went to a different military base oh. and it was a fabulous job. I knew nothing about Asia. I knew nothing about the military. Um, it was a very free job. I had all day long to, um, to go visit art galleries and to learn about the culture in every country. And then I taught from four to seven, four days a week. So it was very, very little in terms of the time commitment. So I had a chance to really reflect on myself and had a chance to really um, explore the country. So I went to Philippines, Korea for six months, Japan, Guam, Hawaii, Hong Kong, Singapore. And people say, ah, oh, it must have been hell every two months, a new country, but it was it was heaven. It was, you know, it's like every day fresh. So in Japan, I met my partner, Hitoshi. Yeah. So after two years doing that job, I quit that job. I had no job in Japan. And I said, okay, I'll do what I can in Japan and stay with Hitoshi and see what happens. So I never went back to work in America. Um, and I stayed in Japan. So what year was that? I think 1989. 1989-1990. So it was a very good time financially in Japan. I yeah. I lived in a six-mat room with Hitoshi, but limousines from all these Japanese companies would pick me up in the morning and the driver would run out of the front door and open the back door for me. And I had absolutely no money, but I was, you know, I started doing, you know, what they call pre-departure training for Japanese executives. And that brought in my income. That was very, I did that for about six months or a year. That was very unsatisfying work. I mean, it was kind of basically teaching Amer teaching Japanese people about America. Yeah. Uh, and it's a little bit um, rote. I mean, there's the same stuff that you teach all the time. So it wasn't, you know, I get bored very easily. Yeah. And uh, it was good income. And I learned a lot about Japanese companies. I mean, you'd go in there and, There'd be the young people in the front eager and the old people in the back sleeping. And class, <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It was interesting. And you know, the clients, the I mean, NEC in particular, and Hitachi and Toshiba and all those clients. Yeah. I mean, you know, you work with the HR people, and um, you know, they have certain expectations, and you have certain things that you want to do, and you learn how to compromise with them. So I did that for a while, and then uh, I started teaching at Kale uh, part time, and then eventually I got a full time job there and went through all the steps from lecture to professor. And then I taught at Kale for 30 years. Wow. And I did a lot of consulting as well. well. We met in Tokyo and that was with uh, doing like sales when I was doing sales circle. That was great. And that must have been for consulting or for the gallery. You know, I think for, it must've been for the gallery and consulting because in, in a way they're very, very similar. And I have had many 
consulting clients that ended up buying from the gallery or buying art for their companies. Um, but yeah. basically, I wanted to learn how to be better at selling my product. And my product was consulting and coaching and also the gallery. But I found I needed a mix of both. So I couldn't say it was for this or for that. I, I need to do a lot of different kinds yeah. of things. So let's talk about the gallery because you're, you're running that now in Okinawa. Yes. Talk around that a little bit. Well, basically the gallery starts from my travel. So you mentioned before we started this podcast that you did some traveling yeah. and I've done a lot of traveling. So about 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, I went on a backpacking trip. I was already in my fifties. I went on a backpacking trip with two rules, no planes, and no, um, no hotels over $10 a night. Wow. I really wanted to experience something different than the regular life I was living. Yeah. So I remember when I went to the airport, I was dressed as a hippie. And one of my clients, the HR guy from Citibank was there. <laughs> they say, where are you going? I said, I'm going on an adventure. And I was a little embarrassed to see him, but I started my adventure. And... I noticed that when I was doing this backpacking trip through Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, places like that, I wasn't so interested in talking with business people that were there as tourists or doing business there. I really gravitated towards artists. They had smiles on their face. They were happy. They were engaged. They were interested. They never complained. I said, what the hell is this? I mean, I was an art collector all my life, but I never thought I would open up a gallery. Yeah. So when I came back from that trip, I met people that I really want to help. I said, you know, maybe I can use my skills to promote their work in Japan. So that's how it started. Yeah. And actually, it's very hard to promote artists from outside Japan in Japan. So eventually we expanded to include more Japanese artists. And that's been yeah. the focus of the gallery, Japanese artists, Southeast Asia. And then three years ago, we started going to Africa. We've been to Africa twice. Okay. And uh, then I started promoting African artists in Japan too. So wow. we have a current show now of African artists that also came out of a desire to help these artists to, you know, artists are not rich people. Artists are not good at marketing. Artists need some assistance from people who know something about business. So that's what we've done. And we've been somewhat successful. It's much easier to sell artists with a name. We sell Takashi Murakami mm -hmm. online. That's um, much easier to sell a recognizable name. You, you know that from your, uh, from your own work as, as well. Yeah. It's easier to get people interested in a company X than it is in, to interest in a company Alpha. Yeah. Um, but uh, we were in Tokyo for 15 years. We, we struggled, we succeeded, we had fun. We did a lot of events. Yeah. I think my major accomplishment there is creating a co community, a community of wonderful people who were the artists and also the customers. And we really, every month we had an event and people got together and it was, it was wonderful. In Okinawa, it's very different, you know, because of COVID, because of Okinawa, we've yep. gone primarily online. So online, we have no community, yep. but we have an opportunity to reach a much broader audience. 
How do you how do you find artists now? Well, right now we're not adding any artists. Period. Okay. Um, we have only worked usually with ten artists at a time. I, I get inquiries. I'd say three a week from artists all over the world who want to show in our gallery. And it surprises me. I mean, it just shows how artists don't really know about how to market their work because they'll send a BCC to, you know, 25 galleries saying, I love your gallery. Uh, I want to show my work in your gallery. And it's just not our taste. It's not what we do. Yeah. we know who we want. I mean, we're working now together with a couple of new art artists from Africa. We still have our artists from Asia and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. It's easy to find artists online. I mean, my advice to artists is show your work online and people will find you. But basically we used to do a lot of travel going to find artists. You know, we talked to other galleries in local countries. We go to museums, we, um, we look at catalogs. We, I don't know, you know, we, there's Okinawa Fine Arts University. We go to the, we, the last artist that we added was a young Japanese woman two years ago. And there's a thing called Gobi Dai, which is five art universities have an exhibition in one of the museums in Tokyo. And there were maybe 600 artists and we chose one. Wow. Uh, okay. So we look at a lot of work. We have looked at a lot of work, but as we're now in this transition because of, COVID and because of going online, we're not really, if something appeals to me, I probably will buy something from them for my own personal collection, but probably won't offer them representation at this point. So I got two questions around what what you've talked about. One's kind of specific to artists is uh, how do you select an art, what what draws you into an artist that you, you, you guys have chosen for your gallery? Okay, I can't stop looking at the work. That's what draws me in, that's what it is. I look and I look and I look and I can't stop looking, I come back to it. Yeah. So when I see an artist, we won't decide to take that artist in until we see the portfolio, until we see what else we can do. Some people can do one good piece, but we need to see the whole uh, spectrum of the work that they do. But basically the criteria is I can't stop looking. But also I have to talk to Hitoshi too, because you know he's very much part of this business. So sometimes, you know, I'm a little bit easy, you know, I'm I'm I can easily be drawn in. But if he says no, and we also have to think about whether we can sell it or not. Sure. In the beginning, I took on some artists that I love them, but we just couldn't sell them. So we had to say we have to say goodbye, unfortunately. Yeah. We have to think sales as well. So and then the second question is much more general question because as a as a business person myself, I try to do a lot of marketing and I'm on, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn. You're on you're on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Um, I try to do some stuff on Instagram when I release my book or do some poetry. I'm I, I try to get my my name out there. But sometimes I just feel like it's just a lot of noise. <laughs> yeah. How, 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 for you, you know, representing people, what, what is it that speaks to you in the, the marketing sense of it, but also just giving value online? 
that either an artist could look at or even a business person or anybody that's, you know, trying to build up that, that social, social community. Do you mean in terms of advice to somebody else? or Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I think that's, I mean, you talked about artists probably not always representing themselves the best, but I find that a lot of times candidates don't companies don't, um, uh, poets don't, musicians don't. So how, what, what do you see from a, someone who represents artists? What do you think that works? I have two thoughts. One is provide some value for other people. I mean, I don't always, I'm not always successful at this, but in my content, I mm. tried to share some, <clears throat> excuse me, I tried to share some content that will help other people. So about the artists, I want to, I want to teach people about art in general and about the joy of owning art. Mm. And I want to show how one of our artists might fit into that joy, bringing some happiness to your room or bringing some, some light to your room or giving you some motivation. And then the other thing is I, I really, I really think it's important. I can't, I think it's important to, to not overdose on a particular media. So if you are using LinkedIn has not really worked for me. Twitter has not really worked for me, but we use Instagram and we use Facebook that really works for us. And I think, I think, you know, this is probably true for candidates as well. Don't be shy about showing your work. I think some people are shy because mm -hmm. they think they're going to get some bad comments. So what? I mean, in my books, and it took me a really long time to write books because I had this fear about, about putting my ideas out there. And I try, I try to put my ideas out there every day. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes people write ridiculous you know, to me, they're ridiculous, but to the writer, it's not so ridiculous. Uh, people write something. So I recommend to my artists, put your work out there, put your work out there. And I think for the candidates too, what, what I used to say when I was teaching is let people know what you think. Mm -hmm. And, and it may turn off some people, but it does attract the people that you really want to work with. And that's true for the artists. I mean, you see the work behind me, Mario Tauchi. He's right. a writer. He's an artist. He's a, you know, he does events. He's an all-around guy. And he, he does a good job on social media, too. So we try to work with our artists to put their work out on social media. You're, um, one of the, I was reading uh, What Do You Want to Create Today again? Uh, last night I was going through it again and and then one of the things that really resonates with what you mentioned was was courage yes. I, mean, I started writing poetry when I was 14 I published my first poem when I was 15 but I was scared shitless to put sure. my work out there sure. as an adult it wasn't until about five years ago that I felt confident enough to say to someone I'm a poet Mm -hmm. because I, in business, I could do business. That's fine. Sure. But you, I don't want to, oh, it's, it's kind of abunai. It's a bit dangerous to mix right. the two. And it, it was very freeing. Um, freeing is a good word when I was able to, but it took courage. And you talk a lot about courage and, and lecture a lot about courage and your Ted talk mentions it. Um, talk, talk a little bit around that. Well, I write a lot about courage because I didn't have any. <laughs> I really had to figure out how to get courage. Yeah. 
Um, I used a lot of. Didn't have any courage. I didn't have any courage. I didn't really have any courage. I mean, I'm I'm a late bloomer. Okay. I'm absolutely a late bloomer. I mean, Japan changed my life. I became successful here. I, you know, students would tell me you're so successful. Clients would say I was so successful when I was in America. I had all the trappings. I had the BMW, the the house, the apartment buildings, everything else when I lived in America. But I didn't feel confident. I didn't have courage. I wasn't really pursuing my my dreams. Um, so I used a lot of tricks to get courage. Yeah, I wrote about some of them in all my books. Yeah. Um, I would write down courage and put it in my pocket if I was lecturing to you know 300 people in China. I would take the word fear and rip it up and throw it away. That stuff works. But you really have to do the deep work of really figuring out what it is that you're afraid of. And that takes years. I'm, I'd like, you know, there are all these little hints. I write about them on my books. But I think what really worked for me is going back to my childhood, going back to my past, understanding what it was that I was afraid of, finding people who encouraged me. I mean, I have wonderful friends. Yeah. That helped a great deal, too. But I think until you can really figure out what it is that you're afraid of, that friggin' fear is gonna come over you again. <laughs> so, in your life, what was what's been what was your biggest fear? I really was brought up saying you'll never be successful and you will never be as good as your father and you suck. That was my childhood. Now, where where did that message come from? I uh, guess. Uh, parents yes. good, okay. guess. good guess that 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 was hell okay uh and of course you don't realize it when you're growing up you think everyone has this shit but um that was the message and that's not a easy message to say goodbye to you you internalize that for a long yeah. long time and you hold yourself back because the message that you got, you know, my father was moderately successful, but um, the message that I got throughout my childhood was you suck. And huh. um, I really thought that I did, especially um, you know, in school, I was a really good student, but I didn't reach my potential. That's why I say, Sometimes it takes a really long time to work through the fear and develop courage. So I know how people struggle to have courage. I, I have empathy for them, but I also want to say to people, there's no easy answers for developing your courage. And of course, writing helps too. And reading all these books about fear and courage and Rollo May and people like that. And going in, in graduate school, I was a, I was a very good student. I was, I think Boston University really changed my life too because I got all A's. I was the professor's favorite, but I was very afraid to give a presentation in graduate school. I, <laughs> I know, I know. Now, now I, you're giving TED talks. I know, I know. <laughs> but I, I would call in sick. I would tell the professor I need to talk to you in the in your office. I think I write about that in one of the books. But um, I really gave that my all and I gave teaching my all. I mean, now, now everything I do, I try to do in an excellent way. So 
yeah, that's that's my past. It's not easy for me. I, I can talk about it. I mean, other people grew up with shit too. Yeah. Um, but that was my shit, and it takes a while to work through that shit. I, I love. I'm just gonna call it shit. Okay. We got to work through our shit. That's a, that's what we're gonna do today. That's, but I, I loved your, um, there was a slide and in, in, it's in the book too, where you, you have that vertical line to success yeah. going straight. You got that vertical line with the arrow, right? Going up and, and it yeah. just isn't that it's a messy squiggly line up down. It and, is. It, it is. And, and I, that's a myth we got, right? That's why I love your yeah. book. Uh, you, you just rail against goals and I'm, I'm right on that with you. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it just it locks you into to dreams, and it, it's so limiting. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Let's jump. I, I want to talk about uh, your your new book, No Regrets: How to Kickstart Your Career in Your Life. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk about millennials. Okay, sure. Talk, talking about railing. Um, I have millennials at work. I got millennials at home. I'm surrounded by millennials. Great. How come I don't understand millennials, Bob? Because um, <laughs> you're coming from your own framework, <laughs> you're coming from your own way of looking at things. You're coming from—I mean, I don't know. You know, I have to talk. I'm an to, old Showa guy. Yeah, don't hold on to that. Do you understand? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to hold on to that. I mean, I had clients who'd say, well, "I'm a numbers guy. I'm not a people guy." But I, I'd say to them, "Don't hold on to it." So I think it's not easy to understand anyone. Mm. To anyone. And I think it's true when people have a totally different upbringing than you. And it's true for whether they're Japanese people or American people or Swedish people or young people. And, you know, I'm really glad I'm not teaching now. I mean, I just think at this age, I, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I mean, there's a really big gap in age, but I would do it if I had to do it and really spend time more understanding them and, I think putting your values and your judgments aside, I mean, I see kids here with so many tattoos and everything else. And I, my first thought is judgment, but then I say, you know, put that aside, you know, they have a totally different life than you yeah. Just to understand them. And I think this is going to sound like a strange word, but honor them, honor their experience in some way, pay attention to it, see, see what you can learn from it because you know, you and me even more than you, we're, we're on our, I mean, I'm on my, I'm on my, let's say last 20 years, you know, so uh, they really are the future. So I think also don't work so hard on understanding them. I mean, first understand them, but if that doesn't work, appreciate them. Does that work for yep, you? Yep. Hard. I, I keep on thinking, you know, 6,000 years of history, you always got the younger generation no. and, and the older generation not understanding. And partly because you get older, you get conservative, the younger have new ideas and they don't appreciate what right. they... And your ideas work... I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I just said, and my ideas work for me and their ideas yeah, work for them, right? It's, um, it's just uh, the value system now is is in some ways different, partly with a lot of social media. So yep. it's a, almost a global thing because you have people, my kids are interacting with people all over the world. It's not just right. Japanese. It's so this is a first time phenomena really with millennials all over the world kind of 
being together <laughs> and having social media and being switched on all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, that does different things to your brain as sure. well. Uh, it should be too much. <laughs> Maybe. Too. And I just think some of that messaging all the time isn't always positive. So I hope, you know, millennials learn at some point to switch off or, or get back into interacting with humans as well. I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem. I think people have unfortunately lost some of that social skill ability to communicate. We, we see that, you know, we see that here in Okinawa too, that people are just not used to communicating, especially communicating with foreign people. I mean, I'm, I think I told you once, I'm the one of two gaijin in the gym. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm the only gaijin. There's three gaijin, I think, in the building, two Russian people and me. Um, but it's not only communicating with gaijin. People, you know, I, I walk, you know, you walk around and you see all of a sudden people pick up the cell phone when, when you're passing them because they don't want to make eye contact. Or yeah, yeah. So I think it's a loss, you know, it's a loss. It's unfortunately a lost skill, a loss. People have lost the ability to communicate because of so much in social media. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Um, yeah, it's too bad. But I think COVID, other stuff. Go ahead. Sorry. being stuckled in COVID, I think will be interesting though, because there'll be either one or two things. People will gravitate towards doing things online more and yeah. it'll become a new normal or people will react violently against it and say, I need to go out and hug someone. I let's interact physically and, and yeah. be out there. And so it's interesting to, it'll be it interesting to see what will happen. And uh, yeah, so millennials, I, I thank you for your book. It's uh, I'm looking forward to having my son read that uh, for, and uh, see what he gets gleans from that. From yeah, I hope he likes it. Uh, got, uh, so some barefoot lunch questions. I like sure. to ask everybody. Sure. What's one book you recommend everybody should read, Bob? Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. Okay. It's a great book. I took a course with her, uh, can we say 40 years ago, 35 years ago? But I, I recommend the book to everyone. I, I don't read business books. Good for I, you. I read... Uh, I read fiction, I read other nonfiction, I read history, I read biographies, I read I read books about people. Yeah. I have more books, but I, I I'll keep it at one if you want. Okay, well I'll uh, put a link to that one. All right, good. And my books too. I and we'll put links to your books there too. And I recommend everybody to read those. What's your favorite lunch? I have to say sushi, but I have two Two places. One here in Okinawa, my favorite lunch is pizza and salad at a place called Parmi, P-A-R-M-I. That's a great place. And the other is sushi at Sushi Kumagai in Roppongi. Have you ever been there? No. Fabulous. Great chef. He was the sushi chef at the Grand Hyatt before and opened up his place two years ago, three years ago. It's in the basement near the American Embassy. Okay. I just was in Tokyo a couple of weeks ago. We went there and with some friends. It was great. What do you get when you get go there? Just uh, omakase. Okay. You know, let the chef yep. decide. Whatever they choose, yeah. 
and there's two or three different levels. You, two, two, there's different price ranges for what you want to pay and what you want to eat, but everything is um, prepared in advance. There's no shoyu. It's that kind of sushi. Okay. And, um, you know, he'll give you the history of everything. That He'll tell you where the fish came from. He'll tell you where the wasabi came from. He has homemade ice cream there that changes based on oh, the wow. I mean, today we're probably going to eat at Parmi, so uh, <laughs> right. it, it won't be the same, but it's good. I, I told you, growing up in Florida and, and learning to eat, I mean, growing up in Colorado and learning to eat sushi in Colorado, not not the most pleasant experience, but I had to... Huh. Yeah. No, right? We didn't know. My, my friend was very good at it, though. He taught me, he's like, okay, here's a egg. Tamago, and then uh, here's a little bit of uh, steamed shrimp, and then uh, a little bit of uh, uh, maguro. And so it was easy for me to get into sushi. So he introduced it to me nicely, but boy, it was not as good as when I got to Japan. Yeah, it's, it's, it depends on the place. We, we have a very good place here, too. People say Okinawa doesn't have good sushi, but we know a couple of good places. But sushi kumagai, heaven. We'll put a link down there. All right, good. And the last question for you, if you could invite anyone to lunch, living or dead, who would you invite? I would invite Hitoshi Ohashi, my life partner and husband. Awesome. I cannot imagine anyone else that I would enjoy lunch with more than him. And I do it all the time. I never stop learning from him. I never stop loving him. I want to say I never stop hating. <laughs> I don't. I don't. It's just I, I. You know, we have a you know thirty years together, and it's always fresh, always interesting, always loving, and always learning. I, I, I love him, and I, I love having lunch with him. What a great! That's great. That's a, a wonderful message. I, I imagine, and then you've run the gallery with him, and and working with your spouse has got to be. I always, uh, people say, oh, that's so challenging, but I, I, I think it would be quite I mean, fun. What's and- really wonderful is that we both discovered things about each other that we didn't really know. I mean, mm-hmm. Hitoshi is a great communicator. Hitoshi has great ideas. Hitoshi, you know, he has skills that I don't have. And then to put the two together and we're able to make this business a success. And also, right. um, you know, he wants to be a writer too, so I'm trying to encourage him to do some writing as well. That's great. What's he? He's uh, he's going to do fiction, nonfiction, something else. I think he wants to do nonfiction. Uh, fiction is fiction. You know, I'm working on a book on Okinawa, which is going to be a very different kind of book, and it's going to be a humorous book. So, you know, when you get out of your genre, it's much yeah. much tougher. So I don't, I don't know. I'll see. I just I tell him to write every day and he tries to write something every day. Yeah. That's uh that's just the, I think the key thing is to tune in and uh, show up and then maybe the muse will show up with you. Maybe not, but you have to be there. I think that's a really good thing for anything that you do. Yeah. You know, people, and I include myself there initially, you're really afraid to show up. I mean, I, and you know, I taught in Japanese university for 30 years. People hide. 
people hide, the kids hide, the professors hide. It's a, it's a little dark sometimes. I think I, I used to say to the students, you know, they they ask me, "How are you today?" I say, "Living." <laughs> they love that. They love that. I said, "I'm alive. I'm happy today," and they go, "What?" You know, bring that isogashi business. You know, I'm busy. When, when, when did that become a feeling? Yeah. <laughs> I'm busy today. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic way to end. I think uh, we're alive, and uh, we've worked our shit out. We're happy. What what can you? Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you today, because you're in Okinawa, what can you see out your window? Palm trees. Oh, so palm jealous. trees and cactuses and a little bit cloudy today. Some remnants from the military days. Um, here, I'll I'll show you. Hi. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, I don't know if you can see it or not. Oh, you can see the palm tree, yeah. Yeah, um, and we have orchids, but, you know, yeah, yeah, it's it's tough here. Yeah, it's great. Tough, tough life. <laughs> this Thanks, is fun. Thanks, David. This brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. The Barefoot Lunch podcast is released on the 1st and 15th of the month and can be found on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. If you like what you've heard, please leave a rating and a nice comment. And thank you. Our original music was composed and performed for the Barefoot Lunch podcast by Sweeney Davis. Mm-hmm.